Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Old Testament reading this morning comes from uh, the book of Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband." If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Thessalonians. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For without thanksgiving, can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly day and night, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Direct your way to our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distresses of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption draws near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The Gospel of the Lord. God, we thank you that you work in our lives. We thank you for the hope that we're given, and thank you that our King... Jesus broke into history, and we pray that as we look at a a small and important part of your history, that we would see that in a new way. Amen. So, back in December of 1998, this is, I was 22 years old, a movie was released uh, starring Anthony Hopkins and Brad Pitt, and the movie was called Meet Joe Black. 
My cousin Jeremy and I drove to a movie house in Westwood Village in Los Angeles with tickets for this film. We sat in the movie house in anticipation. Funny thing though, to this day, I've never seen Meet Joe Black. Never seen the movie. So what was I doing there? Well, my cousin and I had bought tickets to the movie because we were told, we had read that there was a trailer before the film for Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace. Now, keep in mind here, you couldn't watch trailers on the internet in 1998, way back then. So as we sat down in the dark, and the Lucasfilm logo came across the screen, we were met with images, and we were super excited to see them. But we also were greeted with these words. Every legend, every generation has a legend. Every journey has a first step. Every saga has a beginning. I won't go into the eventual disappointment I felt about the film, (laughs) though it was super fun to see it. Rather, the power of seeing an origin story is what still stays with me about that trailer. And those of us who had grown up obsessed with Star Wars, we already knew where the story was going. We knew where it was going to end up. But man, we were excited to see how George Lucas was going to knit this all together. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a season in which we wait for our king, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. He has come once, and we long for him to come again. And that is why the readings today in the New Testament and the gospel focus on that second coming. But it's worth remembering that though we await that second coming in glory, we always remember that his first coming was humble. Even as we deck our sanctuary in this magnificent purple, celebrating his royal kingship. We know he's the king now, but his entry into the world so many years ago must have been hardly noticed. Unless you were a nearby shepherd or a king many nations away. God was working in the humblest of people and the humblest of towns to bring his king into the world. The book of Ruth reaches back to tell that king's, a king's origin story. It's a story of kind and noble characters, and it's a timeless story of love and betrothal. But as an aside, one of the things that has always captivated me about Ruth is not only the humble nature of its characters and the bigger story that they become a part of, but it's where it's set. Each year at the end of Advent, At the beginning of the Lessons and Carol service that said all across the world, people around the world are asked in heart and mind to go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass. And it is, in fact, the primary setting for this remarkable story of Ruth where we will be spending these four weeks in Advent. I even love the name Bethlehem. I love saying it. Something about the word Bethlehem just says goodness of God to me. The book of Ruth tells a story, God's remarkable providence, as well as the story of ordinary people simply acting with kindness and obedience. It tells a story set in a place that is forever tied to King David and to King Jesus, Bethlehem. It tells us a story in the time of near upheaval and anarchy. It's the time of the judges. And it tells a story of hope and deep godly loyalty in the midst of the darkest of times. 
So the first chapter that Scott read very well is kind of divided into three parts. Verses 1 through 5 introduce us to the time, place, and six of the seven people involved in this story, the primary characters. One person's coming later. Verses 6 through 8 depict Naomi's response to the cataclysm that has befallen her and the surprising choice that Ruth makes. And verses 19 through 22 wrap up the introduction of this charming story, and it puts its characters in place and gives us one more great little catalyst for what's to come. So buckle up. You ready? (laughs) It's going to go fast. I'm going to try to not get too bogged down and get nerded out, as somebody said before. I think Pete may have said that to me before. I'm not sure who said Verse 1, there is lots of info here. The tale begins with a man who lives in the time of the judges. There's a famine in the land, so this man goes with his wife and two sons to Moab. The tale begins with crisis, famine. Not only is the judges a time of total strife in the land, this family also needs food so much that they leave their home to get it. A familiar theme for the people of God. Verse 2, Four major names are introduced. The man's name is Elimelech. Elimelech's wife's name is Naomi. And her two sons are named Machlan and Kilian. Verse 2 peels the onion further back by telling us where they live. They're part of a clan called the Ephrathites who lived in and around Bethlehem. It then remarks that they went and they dwelled in the fields of Moab. Now, Moab is about 50 miles from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about six miles south of of Jerusalem. And if you were to look at a map of Israel, Bethlehem is due west of Moab. So they had to go around the Dead Sea, all the way around the Dead Sea to get to their new place so that they could have food. Then the first huge twist happens in verse 3. Elimelech, who from the first two verses we might think is going to be a central character, dies. And it's abrupt. He's gone. And then verse 4 brings this sort of momentary reprieve. There's no comment about whether or not it's a good idea for Malin and Killian to take Moabite wives, but they do. And this is a brief, momentary, possible relief for Naomi, that her sons might indeed be able to have offspring and lift up the inheritance. So two women, the next two, enter the scene, Orpah and Ruth. And then, in verse 5, the final crushing blow is leveled. Both Mahlan and Kilian die. And the narrator takes the time to remind us that this woman, Naomi, is left alone. The narration moves very, very quickly. But let us take one moment and try to imagine ourselves in this predicament. In the course of ten years, Naomi has lost her husband and both of her sons. The darkness of Naomi's life, to me, is reminiscent of the dark time that the nation is in, the time of the judges. And the darkness the country is in sets the stage for God's provision. A godly king... And that is forever tied to Naomi, as we shall see. So first five verses are a lot of stuff. Now we go into verses 6 through 18. They zero in on the principal players of our drama and then introduce us to a wonderful theme that binds this entire story together. The book is unique, and now it zeroes in on two women as the primary characters. That's unusual for the biblical narratives. 
In verse 6, there's this great moment. Naomi arises. And the word there, it's arises. It's this kind of, I'm going. I'm going to deal with this. The text tells us that this is precipitated by God's hand. God had visited Bethlehem. Hebrew for house of bread, if you didn't know. House of bread. With bread. God's hand is the catalyst. God moves her back. And while it's natural for Naomi to return to her home, of course, she's from Bethlehem, she might not have returned without this remarkable provision. And this act of providence is the catalyst for what happens next. And then we get to verses 7 through 13, which is this beautiful interaction between Naomi and your two daughters-in-law. Verse 7, the language creates a picture that they start along the way to Bethlehem. So Orpah and Ruth are both traveling alongside their mother-in-law. And mid-travel, Naomi says, wait a minute. Go home. (laughs) And it's significant here. Only once out of three times in the whole Bible is the phrase mother's house mentioned here. The phrase mother's house only occurs three times, and they all involve love and marriage. So something in the language that Naomi is saying is, is telling them, find other husbands. And she also blesses them by telling them, may Yahweh act with kindness towards you just as you have acted toward the dead and towards me. Now, I'm going to do, I'm going to break a rule here. I had a a Bible teacher once said, never talk about Hebrew or Greek, because it always makes you sound snobby. But I'm going to talk about Hebrew here, because there's a word here that binds the entire narrative of Ruth together, and that word is hesed. This verse introduces another major character to the story, and it's a trait, not a person, and that's hesed. Covenant loyalty or kindness. And it is significant that the first appearance here is the hesed of Yahweh. When Naomi says, may Yahweh give you kindness, hesed. Naomi is praising both of these women for how they have been to her and to the dead, her sons. And she hopes that her covenant God, Yahweh, will be good to them. It's often translated loving kindness or mercy, And it looms large in the entire Hebrew Bible, Hesed does, but especially in Ruth. The concept is introduced here by Naomi, and we're going to return to it a few times. It is, as those of you who have ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible, is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And it's worth noting before we go on that although God is the primary shower of Hesed in the Bible, people can show it too. And it's yet another catalyst in the drama here, as we shall see. Now back to the action. A touching scene in verse 9. Naomi tells Ruth and Orpah to find rest in their husband's house, and they all weep together. And then, in verses 11 through 13, there's kind of this darkly comical situation where Naomi is saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to wait for me to have more sons? I'm not going to get married again. Are you kidding me? If I even had a husband and we conceived tonight, it would, you'd be waiting 20 years or whatever to have a, a husband. It's darkly comical. And the, the realization to Naomi as it ends is that God's hand has done this. It's remarkable too because the language in verse 6 is saying that this whole journey started off because God had brought bread to Bethlehem. And isn't this the struggle we all have with darkness and evil in this world? We all have that because we see the tragedy and we see the goodness of God and we don't know what to do with it. 
But that's its own sermon. I'm not going to try to tackle that one this morning. Verse 14, the great extension of persons hesed. Orpah leaves, Ruth clings. And let's pause for, on Orpah for a second here. She's a noble character. She weeps with Naomi. She initially insists on returning with Naomi. Naomi remarks how kind she was to her son, the dead, as she says. And what Orpah does is totally understandable. Totally. What Ruth does, though, is utterly remarkable. She clings to Naomi, and the same word cling here is the one that's used back in Genesis to talk about how a a husband will leave his family and cling to his wife. For reasons not told to us, perhaps Ruth's character, perhaps they just got really close, Ruth is determined to stay with Naomi. So then, verse 15, Naomi tries one more time. No, no, go. Orpah's going. You go. Don't go. Then verses 16 through 17, and I have to read it again. Scott, you did a great job, but I'm going to read it one more time. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Well, argument ended. It's so striking and beautiful. I will die with you. Such extravagant kindness. And I love the Hebrew, the terse, short language. It basically says, you lodge, I lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. There's not even verbs. It's just stark, utter loyalty. And so by the time you get to verse 18, Naomi's like, okay, fine. (laughs) I relent. So you'd already have the makings of a great story, right? But now verses 19 through 22 act as a closing to this little prologue. Verse 19, they they journey until they reach Bethlehem. And you could tell it's a small town because the arrival of two widows creates a stir. (laughs) Everybody's wondering to themselves, the women are wondering to themselves, is this Naomi? And Naomi, in verses 20 for 21, insists on a new name. And her tone reminds me, at least, of Job. The Lord gives, the Lord took away. She insists that Yahweh has emptied her. The language is very clear. To her, God has done this. God had returned her to Bethlehem. Back in verse 6, it's remarked that God had visited Bethlehem with bread. And by extension, the language seems to be that God had moved Naomi back, right? But Naomi cannot separate her desperate plight from God either. He has done this to me. And she ends saying God had brought calamity upon me. And this word is often translated evil. And it's a word that we never translate evil when it comes to God because it's just too hard for us to understand why, how God doesn't do evil. But Naomi says, God has brought calamity upon me. The language is stark. God has done something that has completely destroyed my life, she says. And then in the last verse of the chapter, the narrator puts Naomi and Ruth back in Bethlehem. And the narrator goes to lengths to remind us again that Naomi is a foreigner. 
And then in a final master stroke, he sets up the story with one short phrase. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I love this. The narrator is just saying, folks, this is about to get interesting. So that's the end of the chapter. Just moved through a lot. So much amazing stuff. Amazing coincidences, coincidences, happenings, proclamations of kindness. What do we take from it by way of application? And I want to focus on two words. One of them, big surprise, hesed. I've already driven that one into the ground. We're going to talk more about that. And then the other one is providence. The commentator Robert Hubbard on Hesed notes in his intro to the commentary that the book of Ruth holds out the practice of Hesed as the ideal lifestyle for Israel. The blessings that both Ruth and later Boaz, who hasn't come in yet, enjoy derive from their firm loyalty. The life of Hesed denotes extraordinary commitment. Orpah is loyal to Naomi, Ruth is super loyal. To Naomi. This devotion that Ruth has involves extraordinary risk. She's willing to go to a foreign land and leave everything, all her comforts, in order to be loyal to Naomi. It's tempting to lean in on moralism here. Let's be like Ruth. And while being like Ruth is commendable, keep in mind that this Hesed of Ruth points to the greater Hesed of our God. This Hesed has no greater picture than the extravagant giving of his son to the world in Bethlehem so many years later. The father was under no obligation to give the world his son, but he did. Because he's a God rich in Hesed. Second, providence. We have a sign on our wall at home, and on it is a phrase written in 1563, and found in the Heidelberg Catechism. It reads, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God in which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Into this dark world comes a providence that rules his creation. It's worth noting that the book of Ruth begins and ends with a king. For those of you who don't know, the book ends by revealing that Ruth ends up being an ancestor of King David. Spoiler alert. And we all know what king descends from King David. But in another flourish, remember Elimelech? The one with this, whom this story started? Is it a coincidence that his name in Hebrew means my God is king? There are references to kings at the beginning and end of this book. And I think that these two king bookends point to the fact that there is a king who reigns over this whole story. Even in the darkest of times, that is true. Ruth's story occurs during a dark time for Israel. The time of the judges was a time full of strife and civil war. And uncannily, the narrator zeroes his focus in on one small story when light shines in the darkness. 
in Israel, in tribe of Judah, there is a poor widow who has lost everything. Ruth shows that widow extravagant kindness. And that kindness becomes God's hand that not only lifts up Naomi, but also the entire nation. The truth is, there is a king who reigns even over these dark times. He is working, even when he seems absent. As we wait for our king, King Jesus, to come back, let us remember that woven within his story is an origin story of God's remarkable providence, even in the darkest of times. Never forget that he is working in the small events in this world to work his masterpiece. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your stories, for Ruth, for Naomi. We look to them and we, we weep with the widows who have lost everything. We weep with those who weep. But we also stand in awe of our king who has come once and who will come again, as we shall say in a few minutes, in glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.